Let's read this. We're in James chapter 4. This is the last verse of the chapter. And uh, if you would just read this together with me, I'd appreciate it. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I have put that also here in the New International Version, which just words it slightly different. Anyone then who knows to do, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. <clears throat> um, in the Greek text, the text that the New Testament was written in, recorded in, um, it, it's, it's a very simple, very simple construction. I just took the Greek text and kind of literally laid it out. It says, the, the one knowing the good, not doing it, auto to him, sin. So it, you know, that's not in smooth English, but that's just the idea that you can see. There's a couple, a couple clauses there. There's the clause of knowing, there's a clause of doing or not doing, and then there's the clause of, of result or ramification or consequence of that. <clears throat> uh, I thought maybe we should just stop and point something out. There are two types of behavior or two types of sin or two types of, of a wrong that the Bible describes. This one mostly gets the press. This is the one we mostly talk about and think about. This is the Ten Commandments. Uh, this is sin that is sin, things that people do. So if you go out here and you steal something from somebody, you have committed a crime. And these are called sins of commission. It it's just means somebody did something and it was immoral or it was illegal or they're in jail now or whatever. They... they they committed some act that was wrong. That's not what this verse is talking about. This verse doesn't mention doing something. It mentions failure to do something. So this is the other side of it. This is the, this is the attitude that says, I know what I should do. But I refused to do it. So I didn't do anything. But I should have done something. And we call this, theologians call this, omission. So you didn't commit a crime, but you disomitted doing something that you were supposed to do. Just two completely opposite ways of messing up, I guess you could say. So the first, so the first one is the guy, let's say, he beats his wife. Now everybody knows, shouldn't beat your wife. That's not good, that's wrong, and you say to this guy, you're not supposed to beat your wife, and he says, I know, but she makes me so mad, I can't stop it, my anger gets away, I lose my temper, and I just, I hit her. Um, that's a sin of commission. I say, poor wife. Now, the second one is the guy who does not beat his wife. He says, nope, I know I'm not supposed to beat my wife. I'm not going to beat my wife. I've never laid a hand on my wife. And I say, good for him. Good for her. But, on the other hand, it doesn't mean that I'm kind to her. 
doesn't mean that I'm sympathetic to her or that I try to meet her needs, really. It doesn't mean that I encourage her. Basically, I don't pay much attention to my wife. I'm thinking just mostly about myself. Um, I really don't have that close of an intimate relationship with my wife. But I don't hit her. You know, there's a difference here. You know, this guy, technically, he has violated no law. The law says don't beat your wife. He don't beat his wife. That doesn't mean he's a good husband to his wife. And so my question, because, not because he's committed wrong, but because he's omitted doing right. And so my question is, okay, so you've got the guy who's not supposed to beat his wife, but he does. And you have the guy who's supposed to lift up his wife and be kind to her, but he's really hard-hearted, and he's, he's does not... He does not encourage his wife at all. He's, he's a terrible to live with. Which one, of these peop- which one of these men are sinners? Which one has sinned? We, we easily jump to the first one and we say, that guy beats his wife, man. I'd like to, you know, I'd like to throw him all over a cliff somewhere. But in reality, this verse is about the second condition James says, if you know you're supposed to do it, and you do not do it, you're still a sinner, because you didn't follow through or fulfill something that you, you really needed to, and that God expected you to. And so, his point is, God doesn't just see the visible, that's what the law sees, you know. A policeman is never going to put you in jail for not being considerate to your wife or being thoughtful or kind and I'm, or husband. don't mean to pick on husbands here, but I mean, it's not illegal to be rude. It's illegal to lay your hand on her, on her but if you're just rude to her, uh, they're not going to commit, you, you know, you're not going to be charged with a crime in the eyes of man, but in the eyes of God. This is what James saying, hold it. God would have a word with you. God would say, this is just as wrong and this is sin as surely as if you had laid your hands on her. So, I'm, I'm just trying to establish that this particular verse is really talking about something that you didn't do rather than something that you did do. And that says to me, knowledge and responsibility go hand in hand. This is what James, this is the principle behind this verse that James, that James is giving to us. That uh, if you know something, then you should follow through with it. God expects, in, in God's mind, as the judge, these two things tie together. You know, Jesus told a story in which he said... Um, <laughs> The, the, the owner went away from the vineyard and the, the vineyards, went, the, the, the stewards of the vineyard, they went crazy and did all kinds of things. And the owner comes back and uh, he's not happy and he says he, he, he beats them. But some of them get beaten with just a couple blows because they didn't know much. They, they weren't in on, the, uh, they didn't realize so much this was wrong. But the other ones are beaten with many blows, Jesus said. Because they were the ones who dreamed it up. It was the difference between the, you know, perhaps the commission and the omission. But what what Jesus was saying was, whatever you know, God understands what you know, 
and it will hold you accountable because knowledge and responsibility go hand in hand. Now, here's my question. When I read that verse, if you know to do good and you don't do it, you sin. Sin, it's, it's sinful for you. First question pops in my head. Why would someone not do the good that they know they should? You know to do good, but you don't do it. Why would you not do it if you know you should do it? Uh, I, I want to mention two reasons that that may be a possibility. The first one is that I really did think I was going to do it when I get around to it someday. It wasn't like I don't want really to do it. I, I just, there's so many other things to do that are more fun, maybe, than the good thing that I should do, that I, maybe I just kind of got sidetracked with, with all of my stuff and my fulfilling, fun-filled things. Um, and, you know, I know it would be good to do this, but it is kind of difficult, or it really make you know, maybe it's kind of a little unpleasant to do this good thing. Um, somebody came to me during Bible school one night. Oh, it was Lorena, I believe. Or she, is she here? Somebody said, we have this kid. I think he pooped his pants. Can you, can you deal with him? Can you help us out here? And, uh, and Mark, Mark, you were in on that. You got to... Anyway, I, I'm just saying sometimes it's kind of unpleasant to do the good thing. That's all right. Um, but we can easily... Sometimes we don't do what we should because we just procrastinate. It's, it's not that we lay the law down and say, I'll never do that. Basically, we just spend our life doing other stuff and wake up in the last moment realizing, you know, I never did do that good thing that I should, that I was supposed to. I neglected it, and therefore I sinned. I did something wrong by failing to do something right. Um, in, in the book of 1 Samuel, there's a story about the prophet Samuel and the people came and they said, we want a king, the Israelite people. We want a king. And Samuel said, oh, no, that won't make God happy. Well, we wanted one anyway. And so Samuel said, he prayed and the Lord said, I'll give him a king, but I'm not happy. And Samuel said, he's not happy. Um, I'll show you. I'll give you an illustration of this. This is the dry season. This is kind of a bizarre story, but you can read it. This is a dry season. We all know it doesn't thunder and rain during the spring wheat season, right? No, no, no. We don't get rain this time of year. Well, watch this. God's going to show you how unhappy it is. I'm going to pray to him, and he's going to send thunder and rain. And the Bible says God sent thunder and rain that day. And the people said, oh, no, we've sinned against God. And they came to Samuel, and they said, would you please pray for us? We have sinned against God. And Samuel said... Far be it from me to sin against God by failing to pray for you. You scoundrels. You maybe don't deserve me to pray for you, but that's a good thing that I am supposed to do. I'm always supposed to pray for someone, and I would never not pray for someone just because I don't like you or I'm unhappy. That would be failure to do what I should do. That would be sin. That's how he phrased it. Far be it from me to sin against God 
by failing to pray for you. In other words, the praying for you is the good that I should do. And he says, I'll do it. Um, but, you know, I think this idea of just procrastinating or neglecting is, is also because the good has so much competition. And so we see all of this other crazy, wonderful, uh, flashy stuff that it's not necessarily good, but it, it sure is inviting and attractive. I, I was reading just, just the other day, and I always, I always get amused by this word. I was reading in the book of Proverbs about the sluggard. The sluggard. What a word. Wouldn't you like to have that in your resume? He's a sluggard. And the guy says in Proverbs, I went past the field of the sluggard. I went past the house of the sluggard. And his driveway was grown up in weeds. And there was thorns out in his, in his cornfield. And the, and the wall by the mailbox was broken down and the rocks are falling off. Sluggard. Just lazy. That's what he's saying. And, and so you have all this have all this stuff. In other words, this guy knows he should plant the crops in his field. He should put Roundup on the reeds in his driveway. He knows what to do. It's not he, like he doesn't have as much time as everybody else, but he's a sluggard. It just doesn't get around to it. And so his life is very unkempt. James is just saying if you're a sluggard about doing good things, you really sin against God. Jesus told the story of, of, about the, the farmer who sowed the seeds and they, in one particular part of the soil, he says they, there were weeds that grew up and they choked out the soil, choked out the plant. I mean, the plant represents the good and it wants to grow. And we say, go plant, go. But these weeds choke it out. And that's all. And the weeds, Jesus said, are all these other fun, fulfilling things that, that seem in our culture like we just got to gotta do, but as a result, they compete with the good that we're supposed to do because all this other stuff that pulls us away and causes us to neglect. So I think that's one of the reasons that people would not or would fail to do the good that they know they should. It's not they don't always want to do it. They just, they're sluggards. They... Let other things compete. Um, maybe it's because it's a little difficult sometimes to do the good thing. The second reason or the second thing is because they don't want to. And sometimes the good thing that I'm supposed to do is not what I want to do. I just absolutely, I don't like it. And sometimes I think it's often because of these two things. We're either afraid or we just are, are defiant against the fact that God says this is what's good. And we say, well, I don't want to do it. Um, I think about the story of, of King Saul when he went and offered a sacrifice that he wasn't supposed to offer as, as a sacrifice. And Samuel, the prophet, came to him and he said, Saul, this is a sin against God that you have offered this sacrifice. And Saul said, well, I was afraid of the people. When you're afraid, you may not do the good that you're supposed to do. 
Then you have Jonah. He wasn't afraid of the Ninevite people. He just didn't like them. And God said, I want you to go over there and preach to them. And he said, forget that. I don't care for those folks. I'll, I'll run the other way. And because he didn't agree with God's merciful good behavior on those people. He wanted to see those people taken out. So his, his disregard for good was because he was defying. I'm simply saying sometimes people don't do, sometimes I don't do the good that I should, sometimes because I just neglect doing it, which is just the same in the end, or sometimes because I don't want to do it. Because maybe I'm just not as compassionate as what God is compassionate and so forth. Second question. Okay. If that's why people may not always do the good that they should, that they had ought to do, the second question that pops in my head is, well, how do I even know what it is that I should do? If I'm going to get in trouble for not doing the good that I should, how do I even know what that is? In other words, if knowledge is tied to, if responsibility is tied to knowledge, where I get that knowledge from? Uh, if I ought to do it, how do I know? How do I know what I ought to do? I'm going to just list three things. The first one is, you always have the right to ask God if you don't know what He. You know, if you feel a little simple-minded and say, well, here's this opportunity, but I don't know if it's good or if it's bad. If it's good, then I know I ought to do it. But I, the Bible says you are allowed to talk to God and ask Him. We call it prayer. And the Bible says a number of places, if you need wisdom, if you're a little simple-minded about whether to do something, whether it's good or not, the scripture can make you wise and praying to him can help reveal to you through through many different ways whether this is good in God's eyes. So this is one thing to certainly, you know, certainly keep in mind is um, this is one of the ways I know what is good. This is a whole book written to teach us what is good, tells us what is good. If the good is what I should do, this helps me to sort out what's, what is good and what isn't. Here's a second. You know, we're all different, and some things you had ought to do because you have the talent to do them, and I don't have that talent. And some things I had ought to do, and you don't need to worry about it because you don't have that talent, and I do have that talent. This makes us very unique. This makes us very individual. And this ties in with God's judgment and His assessment of our life. He isn't going to hold me responsible or accountable for something that was some kind of good that you should have done. Because you could have done it, actually. But we all have a certain amount of time and we all have certain talents. I'm, I'm always intrigued by this... Um, by the verse in Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament chapter 9 it says whatever your hand finds to do what's the rest of it? Do it with all your might. And, 
And it always makes me stop when I read that and say, and say, oh, my hand should be finding good things to do. I shouldn't wait until Donna comes knocking on my door and saying, David, can you, can you do this? Can you help out here? Could you be involved? Could you... I mean, nothing wrong with her coming and asking me, but why should I have to wait till someone comes begging to decide to do something good? My hand can find good things to do. My hand is out here searching, and somehow or other, it comes on a situation or a person that's slipping, and my hand can grab it. Your hand can't grab it because it's not there, but my hand is there. And so... We all, have, we all have talents, and, and, and our, uh, our hand is, is the expectation that we are seeking to find what, what it is that we can do. In other words, there's needs all around us, and we just need to find them and locate them, and Pay attention with a tender and excited, excited heart. This is a joyful way to live. You know, there are people say to me occasionally, I'm bored. And I, I confess to you, I have trouble feeling sorry for those people. I don't see why anybody should be bored. There's so much good that could be done in so many different ways, in so many different places. I don't understand why anybody would say, well, you know, I have my hand out, but I can't find anything to do. Um, I do understand that some can do things others cannot. We have different talents. We have, But I'm simply saying this is how you know. Ask, use your talents. How, how can you use your talents in time? And this is related, sort of, is, is the opportunity and need. You come across... Places and circumstances and opportunities where you can do good, right there. And I don't even, I don't even ever even know about that circumstance. I'm not there. And the same thing is true in the other, the other way. Uh, uh, (coughs) If a need is, if a need is present, uh, if a need is present, why do I even need to ask if I ought to do something? What do, what do, we, need, what do we need to have a committee formed for? And I'm being a bit facetious. Of course, sometimes we need administration and we need organization and we need a committee. But many times we're waiting for the committee to give us an assignment. And I'm simply saying, the Bible points out to us that as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. It doesn't say when the committee gives you an assignment, decide to do something good to all people. You know, I was thinking about the story of the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke chapter 10. And you're familiar with this story. You've heard it all your life. Why do we call it the, why do we call it the good, him the Good Samaritan? You, you can read it. It's in Luke chapter 10. The word good is not in it. Jesus didn't call him good. The Bible doesn't describe him as good. He just says there was this guy got beat up and, and some people walked past him, but this one dude, the last person you would think of, he stopped and gave him medical care. 
We call him the Good Samaritan because we know that's, we just implicitly know that's good stuff. That's good behavior. He did a good thing. He put that guy on his horse, took him to the hospital. He took him to the motel. He said, I'll pay for him. I mean, that's very good, especially from somebody who was the least buddy, person. He's a stranger. And Jesus said, man, this is a, a real neighbor. This is what it, but he never called him good. But we call him good. Because we know that this idea that he helped a stranger when he had the opportunity because the stranger had the need, that's something awfully good. We just know that. And so, and so that, you know. Somebody said, do all the good you can to all the people you can by all the means that you can for as long as you can. I think that's a wonderful attitude. That's what James is saying. Don't back off of something if it's good and you know to do it. Well, just go ahead and get involved. Go ahead and help. Go ahead and do. Uh, this is what God expects. When, when the needs are there, that's your sign. That's how you know. When you have the talent or the time or what, that's how you know. Um, and sometimes just simply praying and reading the scripture will help you. Two things I want to say yet. Number one, I fear that many people pat themselves on the back and decide that they're being a very good person and surely God will be obligated to put them in, let them in heaven simply because they've refrained from doing the bad. I think that's a rampant and common assessment of ourselves. Are you a crook? No. Who, me? Well then, I guess you're going to heaven. James is saying, not so fast. Just because you refrain from, the, from, from just because you refrain from doing bad, doesn't mean that you have, have at all understood God's obligation on your life. So don't comfort yourself with something that's not going to get you anywhere when we face the Lord someday. If all we've done is just said, well, see, do not murder. I'd never, never killed a soul. Do not bear false witness. Uh, do not worship an idol. I, I wouldn't even think of it. And, and I'm... I'm just simply saying, you know, most of the Ten Commandments are there because they're trying to limit some very bad behavior. Don't, you don't need to compliment yourself too well if you're, if you're doing all right with it. Honor your father and your mother. Yeah, I never, you know, I, I never burned a house down or did it. I, like I always gave them respect. I always sent them a card on Mother's Day. That's good. That's good. But I don't think that's going to get you into heaven. So don't comfort yourself too heavily because I think it's a, it's a false optimism. It's a, it's a mistaken hope. I think that's what James is telling us. You're a sinner if you're not doing the good you know to do. Forget refraining from the bad. That's not what he's even talking about. Here's, uh, well, in fact, here's what Jesus said to that. I'll make this very quick. You know, the Pharisees, he called them hypocrites because that's what they were saying. Surely God is impressed with me. 
I tithe. I don't rob God. Oh, no, I would never think of robbing God. I give him from my money. But then over here, they're treating people like dirt. And Jesus said, you disregard the good that you're supposed to do. You're not kind. You're not merciful. You're not faithful. And, and yet, you're bragging because you refrain. And Jesus said, look how he phrased it. You should practice the former and not neglect the other side. It's like Jesus said, it, didn't, it isn't the one or the other. It's both that God takes into consideration. You strain out a gnat. Well, that's good. Nobody wants to swallow gnats, right? Um, if you have a gnat problem, talk to Irene Giesemann. She's got, she's got off with her. She can spray you down, and you won't have any gnats. You strain out a gnat. Well, that's good. But he said, in the process, you swallow a camel. Uh, that's... That's, that's, not, that's not how, you know, that's not healthy. Okay. Let me come back to the, to the beginning of it, to the, very, to the very verse itself. To him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, whether it's neglect or whether it's defiance or whatever it is, to that person, to him, this is where it gets very personal. It's the third person pronoun in, in the Greek text. It's to him it is sin. I'm the one who knew it. In other words, if, 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 if Max here has something that he knows that should be done, God's not going to hold me responsible for it just because Max knew that it was something that should be done. No. If I know that it needs to be done and I don't get involved, or then to me. So there's an objective side and there's a subjective side in other, to, to God's assessment of our life. In other words... I give I mentioned in your sermon notes just one illustration. I believe every person is going to be asked, what did you do about Jesus? The Bible says that. If you do not believe, you will be condemned. John 3.18. That's pretty objective. Did you accept Christ or not? Did you put faith in Christ or not? Did you actually believe he was the Savior of the world or not? Did you believe that he died and rose again and that he came as your substitute or not? I mean, that's pretty cut and dried. That's very different from, did you step into the opportunity? Did you help the guy who, you know, fell down on the road and you came walking past? I mean, the other people didn't help him. They walked on past. Did you walk on past or did you help him? That is, in other words, were you dedicated to do what was possible for you to do? What you knew, what you understood, that's very subjective. And that's what this verse is kind of really bringing out. Um, I always remembered years ago, I read a biography of President Carter, Jimmy Carter. You know, before he was the president, he was the governor of Georgia for a time. And then before that, he was in the military. He was in the Navy. And he was involved with submarines. In fact, he became a submarine commander in the era of the very beginning of the nuclear submarine age in the early 50s. Uh, we were just getting this nuclear sub thing going, and, and as Carter, uh, as he rose up in his ranks and so forth, he uh, was interested in this, and, and he, he, of course, to become a commander of sub. I'm not sure if he was the 
like the ultimate sole commander, or but he he was executive, or he he was in, involved in running and in, in the command of the sub. Of course, he had schooling he had to go to, and a lot of preparation for this, because you know, I mean, you're not going to just let anybody run a, run a sub around in the oceans. So at the end of all of his exams and all of his uh, preparation. The final thing was an interview with Admiral Hyman Rickover, who was a legend. He was the, the man behind the nuclear submarine program in the United States. He had pretty much single-handedly convinced our whole entire government that this was the wave of the future. And he just, I mean, the nuclear sub-program was his, was his baby, and he, he, he controlled it. Um, and he was very eminently qualified to do that. And the final end of the, of the goal for, for, for Jimmy Carter was a, an interview with Admiral Rickover, which had him shaking in his boots. This guy was known to be tough. Uh, he was known to be no-nonsense and all this. So he said, you know, I was kind of sweating bullets and, and came to his office or knocked on the door, whatever. I was given entrance into Admiral Rickover's office. And he said, I was surprised he was sitting in a chair. And he wasn't at his desk, he was sitting in a chair, and that kind of put me at ease, and I felt a lot better, and I sat down, and Admiral Rickover said, um, looked over his record and so forth, and he said, I, I tell you what, he said, we're going to keep this short, I'm just going to have one question for you today, just one question. And Carter said, I thought, great, oh wow, you know, I've studied, and I'm all prepared, and everything. I could just have one question. He said, uh, have you ever, either in your life, or in your military career, have you ever, even one time, failed to perform your duty? Carter said, uh, yes, sir. There have been occasions where I have failed to do my duty, perform my duty. And he said, uh, Rick over said to him, why? And he said, I was pinned in my chair. Felt like the weight of the gravity of the universe was crushing me down smaller and smaller and smaller. And he, because he said, I had no answer. There was nothing but an excuse that I could possibly come up with as to why I had at some point not done the good that I knew that I should. That's my duty. And he said, I, 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 I had no answer for this man. And he later on said, I mean, he said in his book, that that moment and that question and that moment with Admiral Rick, Rickover had more influence on his life than anything else in his whole life except his parents raising him. He said, it, it shaped my view of everything in the future. Had I failed to do my duty, and if so, if I, if I couldn't say I had never failed that, well, then the question was, why? I think this is what James is saying to us. We have a duty, the good that I know that I should do. The duty is to do it. Oh, Father in heaven, this feels kind of overwhelming, kind of threatening, because we would all have to say, as Jimmy Carter said, well, sure, sometime or other, I failed to do my duty. 
But let us not take this as a threat, but as an encouragement that it is very possible for us to do immense amount of good if we just do what we know we should. Strengthen us and motivate us and envision us to see the good and to follow it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.